Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning. Welcome. And those of you who are just joining us online, salutations. Maybe you slept in or you didn't sleep in and you got up early and you're there at home in your onesie. Hello. Um, Hey, today we're continuing our teaching series, People Skills. And in this series, we're trying to sharpen our relationship tools and we're trying to discover the Jesus way to live in community uh, with each other. And I'll get right to it this morning. We are talking about loving confrontation. And I don't mean loving to confront people. I mean confrontation that is loving, okay? And uh, I wondered this morning if you ever felt like you needed to confront somebody. Maybe they did something to hurt you, or maybe they're heading down a wrong path, or, or maybe they're, they're engaged in self-destructive behavior that you realize is probably going to destroy their lives. Have you ever wondered to yourself, how do I go about this? You know, like, what's the best way for me to go about confronting somebody who I care about, but that I need to have a conversation with. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was, uh, I was pastoring in a church, and I was awoken one Saturday morning by a phone call. And I picked up the phone, and the person on the other line was a, um, a disgruntled member of my congregation that I was, I was pastoring in. And he was upset with me for a very strange reason. He was upset with me because I had worn plaid to church just a Sunday prior. Yes. Um, so in, in, his, in his understanding, pastors should not wear plaid. Pastors should wear suits. And he was upset enough, and his wife was upset, and he said there were a number of other people in the church who were really upset about this issue. Now, just a little bit of context. First, let me say, at Crosspoint, you can wear whatever you want. Whatever you're comfortable in, just come as you are. That's the kind of community we were in. But in that time, the the church that I was in was transitioning from being kind of a Sunday suit kind of a church to being a little bit more casual at the time. And I had just spent an entire week away teaching at a Bible college, of course. All my clothes were dirty. I got back, All I had to wear was a nice button-up plaid shirt and a pair of khaki pants. And so I wasn't even preaching that Sunday. I was actually just playing bass guitar somewhere in the background. Um, So I said to him on the phone, I said, you know, I, I, I am sorry that my wardrobe offended you. That was not my intent. I would love to get together. Can we get together for a coffee, maybe talk this through and, and uh, you know, kind of explore some options? Why don't, why don't you give me your name and your phone number, and, and we'll try and arrange something. And his response to me was, I am not going to give you my name. Um, and I do not want to go out for coffee with you. I do not want to have a conversation. As a matter of fact, uh, I know what kind of person you are, and I know where this conversation would lead. So... If you do not change your ways, I am going to leave the church, and my wife is going to leave with me, and I know a lot of other people who feel the same way, and they're going to leave the church as well. And then he hung up on me. Click. I was lying in bed with my wife, Karen. I rolled over, and I said, you will not believe what just happened. (laughs) Wow. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that a good approach? Is that a helpful approach to conflict resolution? Now, you don't have to answer that, but I want you to keep that scenario in mind 
this morning as we walk through uh, this teaching of Jesus. We're going to be looking at a, a text in Matthew 18 um, and starting at verse 15. And this is a teaching of Jesus. And uh, he's, he's talking about what to do when there are conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, now, even though that's the context of what he's talking about, we will discover that what he shares is actually applicable in all sorts of other relationship scenarios we find ourselves in. It's applicable in your work. It's applicable in your family. It's applicable with your relationships. And you'll also find that it's also applicable in a number of different scenarios. For example, if you're confronting somebody who's doing something that's destructive, the principles here still have application for those types of scenarios. So I'm going to just dive right into the text. You can follow it in your bulletin notes or in your Bibles if you have them. And Matthew chapter 18, starting verse 15. And these are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, I'll tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything um, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for this word. Jesus, we thank you for these specific words that you gave to your disciples, to your followers on how to live together in community in the Jesus way. And we pray, Lord, that this word would uh, fall on good soil. It would fall on hearts that are open to hear from you. Uh, God, you would teach us. You'd nudge us, encourage us, spur us on. We just submit ourselves to you and, and what you have to say to each of us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is I, I want to do a deep dive into the text, and I want us to explore five principles of loving confrontation. Here's the first principle. Commit to reconciliation. You know, the goal of every conflict uh, uh, resolution should always be to reconcile. That's the goal of every confrontation. And what does reconcile mean? Reconcile means to bring into alignment. It means to take two parties who are distant and to bring them together so that they're living in peace. Now, I do want to say very quickly is that reconciliation is not the same as restoration. And sometimes we confuse these two. Uh, restoration is bringing a relationship back to where it once was. So you and your BFF, you get into a fight, you have words, you know, you're not talking to each other, you, you stop following each other on your social media accounts, right? And then you work it out, you get back together, and when you first work it out and get back together, you are reconciled. But then you work so hard at that relationship that it goes back to the way it was before. Pedicures, manicures, hunting squirrels, whatever you do together, okay? You're back into the friend zone again, fully and completely. That's restoration. That's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation takes time, it takes trust, and recon uh, sorry, restoration takes time and it takes trust, and restoration might not happen, but reconciliation can happen. What Jesus seems to be talking about in this text is reconciliation. Notice what Jesus says. He says that after you go to someone else and it works out, you have gained your brother. Other translations that you're reading will say you have won your brother over. So the idea is to get both parties on the same side, on the same page. This passage is about reconciliation. It's about making and bringing peace. See, here's the thing. Is, is, is when someone wrongs us, 
we want justice. Don't we? I mean, we, we want to be right. We want to win the argument. We want to prove them wrong. We want to put them in their place. But these are very different goals than reconciliation. See, the thing about the Bible is it teaches us that God is a peacemaker. God came to reconcile us to himself by giving his life for us. So Jesus died on the cross, ultimately to bring us back to God. He destroyed the dividing barrier, the thing that was separating us from God, which is sin itself. And so when we put our trust in Christ, the barrier is taken away, and we can have peace with God. So our God is a reconciler. Our God is a peacemaker. And when we seek peace, we are acting just like our Heavenly Father. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, so they shall be called sons of God. When we seek peace with others, we are reflecting God's image to the world. We're showing the world, this is what our dad is like. He's a reconciling God. He's a peacemaking God. And we are peacemakers because our God is a peacemaker. So before you confront, it is important to ask, am I pursuing peace? Am I seeking out reconciliation? Because that should be the top drawer goal. Here's the second thing. Measure the offense. Measure the offense. That's the second principle. Jesus said we should go to others who have sinned against us. So it's important to ask, is this something that's really worth confronting? I mean, think about it. Should we really confront everything that we find wrong with everybody? I guarantee this. If you spent the day with me, if you spent one whole day with me, you would find at least 20 things wrong with me idiosyncrasies, strange habits, shortcomings, guaranteed, hands down. And I guarantee you something. I will find 20 things wrong with you as well. Yep. <laughs> this is the thing I find fascinating uh, about short-term mission trips. On day one, everybody is starry-eyed by the sa about saving the world. But day five, everybody else wants to be saved, and they want to be saved from the rest of their teammates. Okay? <laughs> It is, it is so easy to spot shortcomings and failures in others. And as it turns out, we're actually hardwired this way. Each and every one of us was designed in the image of God with this innate sense of justice. So it's like we have this little inner radar that's able to spot what is right and what is wrong. But the problem with our radar is it's broken because we're fallen creatures. We're fallen human beings. In fact, human beings tend to see the worst in people. We have what's called a negativity bias. So we have a problem-seeking mindset. And let me give you an example I discovered. Uh, this was in a book called Switch. was written by the, the, the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. And they say in the book that if you go to the English at Home website, it lists the most common words for emotions in the English, in, in the English language. Okay? So if you go to that website and you look at the first 24 words in alphabetical order, these are the words that come up. Look at this. And I want you to look at those words really quickly, and I want you to see if you notice a pattern about those words. This is the first 24, alphabetically, about human emotions. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you the pattern. You will notice that only six of those emotions in that list of 24 are positive. As it turns out, this is not an accident. There's one psychologist who took every human emotion word in the English language, and he categorized them positive and negative. And here's what he discovered. 62% of the emotion words in the English language are negative. 38% are positive. We have a problem-seeking mindset. And this has been uh, reinforced by numerous other studies that have studied other aspects of human behavior. We just have this tendency to spot the negative 
we have a negativity bias, and it's because there is something wrong with our internal spiritual hardware. And so let me get this question out there again. Is it our responsibility to confront others about everything that's wrong with them? Do you know the Bible actually teaches that it is appropriate to overlook minor offenses in people's lives? I want to walk you through just four verses really, really quickly, and I'm just going to read them out and give you a chance to look at them. Let's start with the first one. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Proverbs 19.11 A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.14 Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. What do we learn about these verses, or from these verses? Well, first of all, we are not the moral police for the universe. And sometimes we just need to be patient, bearing with each other, quick to forgive, not so quick to take offense. And all of this is possible, all of this is possible when we deeply understand the gospel and when we live in the gospel and we know how much God has loved and accepted and forgiven us. Did you notice in that first verse it says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Why do relationships sometimes fail? You know, relationships don't always fail just because somebody does something really, really stupid. Sometimes relationships fail because a person doesn't do everything exactly right, and the other person's keeping track and picking them apart. And so that person in that relation find, relationship finds that they're never quite good enough. And you have that in a relationship, that's going to wreck any relationship. This problem-seeking mindset all the time. So the question then is, when should we confront? I found something really helpful in Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. And he talks about two key critical criteria for when we should confront people. The first one, he says, is when the offense has created a wall between you and the other person. So you feel differently toward them for more than just a short period of time. And the second criteria, he says, the offense has caused serious harm to God's reputation, to others, or to the person, him or herself. So before you confront, it's so important, so important that you first of all measure the offense. Is this something actually worth confronting? Here's the third thing we learned from this, uh, third principle we learned from what Jesus taught, is to confront appropriately. So if something needs to be confronted, then Jesus actually says, then you must go. So notice the force of this. It, it's not a suggestion, right? It is a commandment from Jesus. He's saying this is just too important. You must go and you must fix it. You must work it out. So he doesn't say, you know, wait for them to come to you. He doesn't say, bow out of the relationship. He doesn't say, ignore the problem. He doesn't say, change friends groups. He doesn't say, change churches. Okay, he says, you must go. It's something that needs to be confronted. As a believer in Christ, a member of God's family, you have a responsibility to go and work it out. Now, when it comes to confrontation, I, just, I find there are, there are good ways to confront and, and I find that there are really bad ways to confront. So I want to share with you really quickly some principles of good confrontation. Subpoints under this third point. Here's the first, uh, first thing, is, is to do it lovingly. Do it lovingly. 
Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Do you know our Father wants his, his spiritual family to live together in community? And, and when we speak with each other, he says that we are to speak together. Uh, it should be done in love. In other words, we, we say it with the other person's best interest in mind. So how you say it matters. You know, I could say to you, hey, friend, your fly is undone, right? Or I could say, ha, your fly is undone, loser, okay? How you say it matters, right? It's very, very different. So when we confront, we're supposed to do it lovingly. But here's the second thing, is we do it truthfully. In that same verse, it says what? It says, speaking the truth in love. So this means that you're addressing what actually happened, not just what you assume has happened or what somebody who told somebody who told somebody says has happened and when you confront others uh you have to be careful not just to assume motives because here's the thing you only know what happened you don't know why it happened or why that person did what they did so when confronting it's it's always important to lay out the facts here's the third thing do it humbly do it humbly Ephesians 4, 1-2, Paul's addressing the church, the community of God, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, the verse talks about how we should live together in community. This is what God wants for us as the people of God. How do we live together uh, and how do we live worthy of the calling as, as children of God, children of our Heavenly Father? How do we live up to that? Well, he says you do it with, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, and in love. So I just want to zone in on humility here. Zoom in on that. How do you confront somebody with humility? I thought about this, and I, and I think the way you confront somebody with humility is you accept your own limitations. In other words, you confront realizing that you could be wrong, that you don't know the whole story, that you don't have the big picture. Now, sometimes you, you have a very accurate assessment of what went wrong. So if your friend hits you in the side of the head with a frozen 10-pound tuna, okay, you know what went wrong. It's very, very clear. But sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes you don't know the whole story. Um, the author, Stephen Covey, uh, wrote a great book, Seven Habits, Highly Effective People. And he tells a personal story. One Sunday morning, he was, he was on subway. And it was a serene, quiet morning on the subway, just clicking along. And then the subway stopped, and in walked a man with his children. And they were loud, and they were noisy. And the man came in, and he sat down next to Stephen Covey. He put his head against the window, and he closed his eyes. And then these kids were tyrants. They were running around and yelling. They were throwing stuff at each other. They were grabbing people's newspapers. So after a little while, Stephen Covey started to get a little bit irate. And uh, so he turned to the man and he says, listen, I don't know if you know this, but your kids are really disturbing a lot of people. Um, is there anything that you can do possibly to just control them? And then the man kind of raised his head. He opened his eyes and he realized exactly what was happening. And he turned to Covey and he said this. He says, oh, yeah, I, I suppose I should do something about it. But their mother just died in the hospital an hour ago. And to tell you the truth, I don't know what I should do. And I'm pretty sure that they have no idea what to do either. Well, in that moment, Covey had a paradigm shift. It switched from confrontation to compassion. He says, your wife just died? Tell me more about that. Is, is, is there any way that I can help? See, sometimes in our confrontation, we don't fully understand the whole story. 
and we need to approach it with humility. We need to know the story. Now, so here's one very practical way that you can um, confront somebody with humility. I want you to learn this phrase, help me to understand. Help me to understand. So start by telling what you see, what you, what you know, the facts or the truth of the matter, and then follow it up by saying, help me to understand. So, uh, give you an example. Um, I see that you ate half of my meatball sub. Help me to understand why you did that. We'll bring it up on screen here. I see that you ate half of my meatball sub. Help me to understand why you did that. I'm going to give you a chance to practice. You can turn to the person beside you, and you can say, I see that you ate half of my meatball sub. Help me to understand. Go ahead. You have it. Get to practice it. You got to practice. Now, you don't have to answer them, okay? You're just practicing. All right. There it is. I see you ate half of my meatball sub. I wouldn't understand why you did that. Well, here's the last way to confront. The last way to confront is to do it patiently. To do it patiently. You know, sometimes confrontation actually takes several conversations. It's not a one-time deal. It, it, and that's because it takes time for people to absorb things when they're being confronted. And oftentimes we have this fight-and-flight instinct, and we're not going to respond really well the first time around. And what's interesting is that when Jesus uh, commands us to go to our brother and sister, it, it's in the, in the actual verb form, it's, it's clearly not a one-time incident. In, in the original Greek, the verb actually implies ongoing, continuous action. So a more literal translation might be, go and keep on going. So what's implied here is not just one conversation. It could be multiple conversations that's happening in this confrontation process. So that means we need to be patient with people in confrontation. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes multiple conversations. All right, here's the fourth big principle. The fourth big principle is this, is to keep the circle as small as necessary. You'll notice that Jesus says in verse 15, between you and him alone. So the starting place of confrontation is always personal right? One-on-one, which means that when somebody personally wrongs you, you don't go and tell everybody else about the problem. That's not what you should do. So you don't call your mother or your mechanic or your masseuse or your meteorologist, right? Don't share it with your prayer team. Don't share it with your BFFs or your BFAs. Don't post it. Don't tweet it. Don't blog about it. Don't sell it to TMZ, okay? If they are not part of the problem, they are not part of the solution. Keep the circle as small as necessary, you know, we want to get other people involved. And, and why do we do that? I mean, maybe we're looking for affirmation, right, to show that we're right. Maybe we're trying to build an alliance against this other person because we feel threatened. Or maybe, more insidiously, we want to undermine that person's character. We want to destroy their reputation. But here's the problem. The moment we start talking to people who aren't part of the problem... We are slandering and we are gossiping. And we are not acting in love. And we are not seeking reconciliation. A peacemaker will seek out the person directly and try to make things right. Now, let me tell you, as a pastor, uh, there will be times that people will come to me and they'll say, you know, so-and-so did this to me. What do you think I should do? Or so-and-so did this to me. Can you go and talk to them? 
And my response to them almost every time is the same. I ask them the question, well, did you go and talk to them? Did you do the Matthew 18? Did you have the personal, loving, direct conversation with them? Go and talk to them personally before you come and talk to me about the problem. Because Jesus wants us to keep the circle as small as necessary. Now, just as a side, I will say that these are general principles of confrontation that Jesus is giving here. What's assumed here in the text is that this is a brother-to-brother relationship. In other words, or brother-to-sister relationship or sister-to-sister relationship. What's assumed here is that there is a level playing field. Uh, There will be exceptions. So, for example, if it involves abuse, there's some sort of abuse involved in a relationship. I would never say to the abused to go and confront their abuser because that wouldn't be safe right? Or if there's a real uh, distance, power distance deferential, you know, like between an employee and a boss or a child and a parent, we might approach things just a little bit differently in that type of scenario, okay? So this is a general principle, and there sometimes are exceptions, and you just manage the exceptions. But as a primary principle, we should keep the circle as small as necessary. Here's the fifth one, the fifth final principle. Invite others only as needed. Now, as it turns out, most conflicts can be resolved, either personally and privately. But there are times when that, it, you come to an impasse. The horns get locked, and you cannot go forward. The person you confront is not willing to listen. Well, what then do you do? Well, Jesus gives us some instructions. He says, if the offense is serious enough, well, you might need to involve others, which means involve, um, bringing two or three other people into the conversation. Why would you involve other people? Well, first of all, it, it, uh, it can be more objective. You know, you bring other people into the picture, they're, they're going to see things that you don't see. They're going to see your blind spots and your biases in the conversation, and they're able to kind of help sort through that. But second, and this is in the text, is that it can actually bring a fair outcome. You know that Jesus says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's he doing here? Well, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Uh, you see, under the Old Testament law... A person could only be convicted if there were sufficient witnesses to accuse that person. It's just good, fair jurisprudence. And people shouldn't be declared guilty based on one witness. In fact, our own legal system is actually designed and based upon the Old Testament legal system. It finds its way through history towards us. So so when you involve others, what, what it does is it creates a fair outcome in that conversation. Now, I don't think that what Jesus had in mind here was a surprise attack, okay? I don't think what he says is, you know, show up at somebody's door with two or three of your thugs in a posse, right, in order to bring them down. I don't think that's going to lead to reconciliation at the end of the day. I don't think that's what he wants. So what these need to be are fair witnesses. They should be mature, unbiased, objective, not hot-headed, not contentious, right? People who are going to actually help you move towards reconciliation. It might even mean bringing in a professional counselor or someone who can mediate in that way. And you might say, when your horns are locked in that conversation and it's going nowhere, you might say something like this. You know, it doesn't seem like we can resolve this ourselves. Would you be okay if we invited other people to come in and to just give us some objective feedback. How would you feel about that? And then if they're in agreement, then you sit down together and you choose the people who you think would do a great job of coming in and helping to resolve that conflict. But then, Jesus says, if that doesn't work, 
you expand the circle even further, okay? And this time it goes from actually being informal to being formal. He says, then, if that doesn't work, you take the matter to the church. And this step then, of course, obviously, is for conflicts within the church. You wouldn't bring someone from your business who's an outsider to church to receive some sort of help to resolve this conflict, obviously. And so what does this look like? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean bringing them before the entire church on any given Sunday. I don't think that's what they have in mind here. And I, yeah, I know there are churches that do that. We don't roll that way, obviously, because uh, that's probably not what Jesus has in mind. And as a matter of fact, the early church wasn't set up the way that we are set up in, in community. That's probably not very practical. But rather, I think what it means is those who represent the authority of the church. It's elders, it's pastors, it's leaders, maybe even your small group is the, the ones that you get involved in this type of a conflict resolution. Now, I will say this, okay? I can imagine that this part of Jesus' reconciliation strategy does raise questions with people, okay? It raises questions with me. Um, I mean, why should the church get involved? And why is it any of the church's business about what happens between believers in Christ? And, you know, I, I think the confusion occurs mostly when we see the church through the lens of culture, and we don't see the church necessarily through the lens of Scripture. We live in a day and age, in a Western civilization, uh, children of the Enlightenment, where we have a strong bias against institutional authority. As a matter of fact, compared to other cultures in the world, uh, we have what's called a low-power distance between leaders and followers, or people and institutions. It's like flat hierarchies. We're big on that, okay? Um, so we exalt human freedom and autonomy in our culture, like, like, at no, like no other time in human history. And we deconstruct, deconstruct systems of power and authority. And where that leads us then is, is this a mistrust of institutions such as the church, okay? But we still need to understand this, is that Jesus does give authority to the church and its leaders to judge in matters between believers, and I think any mature disciple in Christ needs to really wrestle this down and needs to think it through. What does the Bible teach us about human freedom and submission to authority? And how do we live in this tension between the lens of Jesus, or the eyes of Jesus, and the lens of culture? Now, I'm not going to answer that question this morning. I mean, that's another teaching series altogether, okay? But we really do need to think these things through, particularly in a day where freedom is exalted so highly. What does that mean for us as believers in Christ in the church? Okay, Jesus clearly does say in this text that there is a place for the church to get involved. But again, that's at the end of the process. That's not uh, at the beginning of the process. Um, but there is a place for that. So let me bring it full story, uh, full circle to the story of the Platt incident. Can we go back there? I began with it this morning. Let me ask a question. Was the goal in that conversation reconciliation? Was it an issue worth confronting? Was it done in love, truth, humility, and with patience? And was it done personally, face-to-face? -face? Friends, our God is a peacemaking God. He came to reconcile us to himself. He came to reconcile us to each other. So what would happen if we took this teaching of Jesus seriously? How would it change our relationships with each other? How would it change how we do life together in community? How would it reveal our Heavenly Father to the world? And so, 
Friends, may we be peacemakers who work hard at reconciliation. May we be so full of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we overlook small offenses. May we love each other so deeply that we will courageously confront sin when necessary. And when we confront, may we do it in truth, in love, in humility, with patience. May we be careful in guarding our tongues and guarding our motives. And may we do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring peace, shalom, in this community and to our world. And finally, may we be people who are humble enough to receive correction when we need it. Because God has given each and every one of us the responsibility to care for each other. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the band to come. And so, our Father, we thank you that your posture towards us is reconciliation, that you have turned your face to us, and that through Christ you are reconciling all things to yourself, as the Scripture declares. And so, Father, may that, that reconciliation that's there in our hearts overwhelm us in our relationships with each other. May the gospel and the, the good news just spill over as we consider others who have offended us or others who are struggling. And God, may we lovingly confront our, each other for the sake of bringing peace in the community of faith. Thank you, God. And, and I know there are some here this morning as we talk about this, Lord, who uh, are being nudged. There's a relationship where they need to lovingly go to somebody and make it right. I pray that you would make them courageous in that, Lord. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give them the words to say. I pray that you, Lord, would undertake already softening hearts so that when that conversation happens, God, there can be peace. God, I, I pray that uh, we would be willing to receive as well. Receive in humility what we've done wrong. So God, bring peace in our relationships today, whatever those relationships are. We love you and we worship you as the God who first loved us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.